First John chapter five. The following guys, sermon John was preached at Tower View Baptist guys, Church. There, if you're visiting with we us, are so a gospel center, relationship-driven church Sunday. that exists you know, to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Please do so. We'd rather you have the Word of God than not. Uh, because quite frankly, most people say, Darren, I don't need a Bible, I have my cell phone. Well, I have my cell phone too, but T-Mobile doesn't go everywhere, and Wi-Fi doesn't always work, amen? So uh, sometimes it's nice to have a paper Bible, uh, because it reminds you uh, that God is still works through old school paper. Right, young people? Amen. God is good. Well, uh, at the end of the service, we're going to do a couple things as you're turning there before we start. Uh, we're going to honor Mr. Mark Hinkle. Uh, this is his last week leading us, and how grateful we are. Uh, we'll do that towards the end. And, uh, uh, and, and Mark, I think you even got a haircut, uh, did you not? I think so. So uh, we can, I told Mark I was going to give him a hard time this morning. So we'll thank God. Uh, Gilbert starts with us next week, so you keep that in prayer. But also, it's hard to believe, how many of y'all were here last Labor Day Sunday when Matt Andrews was here for his, uh, his view of call? You all remember that, some of y'all? Can you, can you believe it's already been one year? Matt, you still look like you're 17, but uh, I'll just let that be what it is. So you might be a youth yourself, Matt, we're not sure. But we do, uh, in all seriousness, at the end of the time, we will pray for these folks, and we are so grateful, friends. We are so blessed here to have the leadership that we have in the ways that we do. Uh, God is good to us, amen? And God is very, very good to us. Well, on a, on a dr- uh, cloudy Sunday, I want to introduce you to a guy that I don't really want to introduce you to, but it helps frame our conversation as we start out this morning. It's a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. Has anyone ever heard that name before, Bertrand Russell? Yeah, he's a, he's a mess. He's a hot mess, if you want to use those, that phrase. He, he lived from 1872 to 1970, 98 years on this earth. And one of his major contributions, if you will, to society is that he was an atheist, and uh, he liked to make that known. And one of his best well-known books, written in 1927, was Why I Am Not a Christian. It sounds like something that you could write today, doesn't it? It really does. And in his book, he argued that all organized religions, I'm quoting here, are the residue of the barbaric past that dwindled to mere hypocritical superstitions that have no basis in reality. Basically, he's calling all of us Christians a bunch of wackos that shouldn't be doing what we're doing. So, and on one occasion, he said this. He said this quote that you'll see up on the screen. He said, religion is something left over from the infinity of our intelligence. It will fade away as we adopt reason and science as our guidelines. And when you know that Adolf Hitler actually quoted him as part of his teaching, if you will, or, or brainwashing of the German people before World War II happened. It's amazing how one thing can lead to another. And, you know... Bertrand Russell also said, I should reproach God for not giving us enough evidence that he's around. It's very interesting because I don't know if his problem was with God necessarily, but his problem might have been more to do with his personal morality. As a serial adulterer, he had numerous affairs. Russell attempted to justify his adulterous escapades in a book entitled Marriage and Morals, written two years after Why I'm Not a Christian. And he argued that humans should not be monogamous, they should not be in a lifetime marriage and should not expect anyone else to be. Scary, isn't it? That sounds like today, doesn't it? Where do we get all this stuff? 
Friends, the Apostle John that we're going to read would disagree with Russell when it comes to the issue of not having enough evidence for God. He would disagree with them about what the purpose of life is. He would disagree about everything that is here to come. Friends, the passage we're about to, to read, and the reason I bring up Russell is because this is the prevailing thought even 70, 80, 90 years after his books were being mentioned. This has been the thought since John's time. Go live life. Do what you want. Go and, and just live it up. As long as you don't tear up too much and you do it just fine, eat, drink, marry, for tomorrow we die. And people will say, well, if God was here, I would live a different life. Oh, yeah, just like you live a different life when your boss is around the corner and you're surfing the net when you shouldn't be. Right? Friends, the problem is not with evidence. The problem is with the sinful and unbelieving heart and always has been. Psalm 19.7, Matt read this, says this, The law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You see, many people in Russell's day, many people in our day, many people in John's day are confused by what the word Christian means to be. But we need to ask ourselves as we end the last two weeks of this book of 1 John, the study of it, what is at the core of Christianity? Is it just a moral monster that we created to keep society in check? Or is, it, is there more to it? Is there life behind these commands that God gives us that Russell and others will just say, away with? Many are in danger today because we are defining Jesus subjectively and not objectively. And the question is, does what we say about Jesus and what he came to do matter? Does it really matter? And friends, what is the distinctive marks of a Christian life? You say, Darren, we've hit this every week of 1 John. Yes, we have. But specifically, we're going to ask a question today. Can I know God and not be changed? Is that possible? Can I live like this Russell guy who was a moral, immoral guy who slept around against his wife for years all the way through their marriage and still know Jesus Christ? Is that possible? Is that really possible? Are there signs about what we should be living for? Well, Christ tells us and the Bible affirms what the big idea is today. Friends, the big idea and the purpose of what John will write against and what he's seeing in the false teachers then and what we're seeing now is that to live for Christ means that he is our sole purpose, our supreme passion, and our singular pursuit in life. All this other stuff is just a little dangly, twirly, sparkly stuff that will fade away and be gone tomorrow. Life is like, I, I, I hate to say this, we used to go to the woodlands back in the day. We, didn't, we were Baptists, so we just watched the dogs, you know. But I mean, you all remember the Woodlands racetrack, and you remember the dogs would get out there, and they would put that little fake bone, and what do those greyhounds do? They go 100 miles, I don't know if it's 100 miles an hour, it's fast, right? And they put that thing out there, and they send that, and that's how they get them to run, that, 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 that circular track with the bone in front of them on the machine. And friends, that is how some people live their Christian life. As long as God gives me a blessing, as long as God gives me evidence for him, as long as God, I can see it to believe it, then I'm going to chase around like a greyhound races around the racetrack. What John is going to argue is that life for Christ is something that is not always seen by who Christ is, but is seen in the evidence of what Christ is doing through your life. And you'll know whether he is the true purpose of your life. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at a distinctive love. We're going to look at a distinctive life and a distinctive faith. I just did a Google search uh, between classes here this morning, asking Google this question. That's always a scary thing, isn't it? Ask Google. I asked Google the question, how many people in America profess to know Jesus Christ? Do you realize that 
of Americans profess to know Jesus Christ? Is that amazing? And over 400 million hits in America alone on what it means to be a Christian. Wow, that's scary. So how do we know what this is all about? John's going to argue, if you don't have these three things, you know not Christ. You know not Christ. With that in mind, will you stand with me as we do in honor of God's word as we read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Can I know God and not be changed? Can I know God and not be changed? Three verses 1 through 12 in the ESV 1023, page 1023 in the Blue Bible of the Pew. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. That is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three things that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. I love John. He always connects it. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Can you live like a, bird, like a Mr. Russell and be a Christian? Can you live that type of life and know Jesus Christ? Can I know God and not be changed? That's where we're headed today. Is Christ your single passion? I pray that it is. Let's bow our heads as we go before our Lord. Father, as we come on a holiday weekend, a more casual weekend for a lot of us, traveling, no work tomorrow for the majority of us, Father, we are reminded today that we are not to take your word casually. Father, we're not to take your word cavalierly. Father, we're to take it very conscientiously very seriously, very humbly. For, Father, this is your word. So, Father, forgive us our sins this morning as they are there. Omission and commission, all those things in between, forgive us, Lord. Help us to know what this means. And, Father, infuse in us again that we are not to be like the dogs chasing around the racetrack, so to speak, that our single passion is you, the everlasting one, who, when everything else fades away, is still on the throne. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for each one here, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, guys. Thank you. What I want to do this morning is just on the first couple, uh, we're going to spend our main time on verse uh, uh, number three, a distinctive faith, because this is so important for us. But I want to spend just a few moments a piece on distinctive love and a distinctive life. And we're not going to go straight through. A lot of times we'll just go straight down the passage. We're going to hop around a little bit because John does to some degree, but just so you know where we're headed. So first off, can I know God? and not be changed, there is a distinctive love that happens. Look back at verse 2. By this we know the love, uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John ties again Christian love for each other with a love for God. This has been a, a, a theme throughout the whole letter. 
like a good parent or like a good teacher would, he repeats things over and over and over and over. I pray that every time my wife says, honey, do this, that I listen. Amen? Guys? But often my wife is a gracious wife, and she'll remind me a hundred times to do this, that, or the other. John does that right here to us. He says, John, he says, guys, Christians should be characterized by love one for another. Remember, these false teachers were coming around, and they were saying, I have this word from God. Listen to me. God, don't believe the apostles. Listen to me. But their lives were free of love. It's a person who can speak, but out with loving The false teachers are false because they claim to have a special knowledge. But if you lack a love for his children, you lack God himself, John says. If you lack a love for truth, you lack a love for the true God. Friends, that is a truth that goes around anywhere. Most people can speak well when they are a leader. Most people can do that. But it's the behind-the-scenes ministry that really plays in to that. I pray you pray for us as a church, as leaders, that we don't just hide on our holy hill, but we are among you. We are a part of you. We struggle with you. And that'll look for you and your family different in different seasons of life. But I pray that as we get to know one another, as we grow in this ministry together, that we see that and that you do that together. That as a church, we are not a church built on cliques or this Sunday school class or that Sunday school class, but our love, uh, our love really, we smell like each other. Amen? You see that. A pastor should smell like sheep. Does that make sense? And by extension, sheep should smell like sheep. And as a life that is characterized by love, we have to remember that a love one to another that John talks about is not just a love that meets once a week, but it's a love that is there in the hard times, not just hospitalizations. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a, uh, someone in your family. Friends, I pray that for each of us in this church as we grow as you see new faces, as you get to know other people maybe you've never met before, that that is the love that John talks about. Why? Because this is the first application point. We want to be a church where people don't feel they need to earn others' love as a church. We want a a church where people don't feel like they need to wear masks. Now, I'm not saying that is a prohibition against any type of makeup or anything like that. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying, though, is that we want this church to be a place where you can feel free to talk one to another and it not feel like you've crossed some holy religious line that makes you less of a Christian. How many have been in churches like that? Where if you were to bring up, man, I'm really struggling with this, they'll look at you like, oh, yeah, you didn't read your Bible this week, did you? Or, or, or you know, uh, you didn't pray enough this week. Well, maybe you did. Maybe I prayed and, and spent more time with God, but I'm still struggling. That's the type of church we want to see here from our oldest to our youngest, to everything that happens in between that. Friends, that is our prayer for our church because that's the love that is a distinctive love among Christians. It's a very distinctive love. Non-Christians, I will ask you this again. If you're not a Christian here today, do you see a difference of love between what you know as love and what the Christian church brings as love? If you're not a Christian here today, we understand that Christ laid down his life for us, and that is the perfect love that we follow the love that makes Christians hopefully stand out. That is the love that we have. But if you're a Christian, how do you know you know God? I mean, think about this. How do you know you really know God? Uh, We had our Sunday school class, uh, the Williams Sunday school class in there I'm filling in for, and I asked that question, how do you know? And I love our senior senior adults because they nailed this. I think it was uh, Don and Jack said, how do you know you're a Christian? First, you got to know Christ, right? You got to profess him. But Don Harper, I'm going to quote you on this, sir, wherever you're at. Don Harper said, not only do you need to know Christ, but you need to live what you say you profess. Because if you don't, do you really know Christ? Let's be clear. 
You are not saved by what you do, but what you do shows that you are saved. Friends, you can be a church member for 50 years. You, look, there are some churches that are so hard to be members of that it's like going through basic training, the Green Berets and the Special Forces all in one. We are not that type of church, but we take church membership very seriously. But being a member of a church does not make you more of a Christian than jumping off a cliff makes you more of a, a bird. Do you see what I'm saying? If you know Christ, there is a distinctive love about you. And friends, if you know Christ, then you will have that desire to love one to another. That's why we re- reiterate at times the church covenant that we have here. The church covenant says that we realize when we love each other, we love God. And that is very true. That is how we know one to another. Do you have that love that is evident in your life? Do you have that love that's evident in your life? You know, I, I, I was, as I was preparing this, I think I may have shared this a while ago, but this illustration, I love it. These two people always crack me up in this photo that you're going to see. Uh, beauty is said to be in the eye of the beholder. But with that in mind, former First Lady Barbara Bush, who, of course, is in the pink, was in 2001 asked if she still considers her husband to be the most handsome man in all the world. And she replied, yes, but my eyesight is getting very, very bad. (laughs) You know, as Christians, there's no doubt that we will have sight that grows dim and we won't look the same. But if you know Christ, what John is saying is, can I know God and not be changed? If you say you know Christ, you may physically age out your eyes to a place you may not even be able to see again. But those who know Christ, the difference is is that you will grow to love the beauty of the Lord as he is. And by extension, the byproduct of that is that you'll love his church no matter if it's not beautiful at times. As a pastor, we have a lot of things in mind. Many of you have come up, Pastor, what's the next step? What are we going to do? What are we going to do here? Friends, we, this church is not at a perfect state of health, as is any church not at a perfect state of health. We want to love our church where the church is at, and by God's grace, as he leads, lead us in that direction. That is what it is. And you may look around our church and say, there's this and that and this and that, and look, every church has its problems. We have a God who has no problems. The question, though, is what are we doing as a church together, distinctively loving one another to cover a multitude of sins and pointing people back to the glory and grace and character of our God? That is what John says. How do you know you're a Christian? There's a distinctive love. There's also a distinctive life. Look back at verse 2 here. Look back at verse 2. He says, not only will you love in a certain way, And this is going to sound like legalism. I don't want it to, but follow what he says here. He says in verse 2 and 3, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his, what? Commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Friends, look, John is not laying upon you a burden of trying to keep the law to be saved. That's not what we're talking about here. He is clear, though, that morality was not an added extra, but an essential of what it means to be a Christian. If you're going to have a distinctive love, but you don't have a distinctive following of his commands, then you are not a Christian. I'm sorry. What he's saying is, is that false teachers were indifferent about morality. They had the best job in the world. Maybe you feel the pastor does this sometimes. You know, uh, someone once joked, they said, Pastor, what do you do during the week? I just hear you speak for 45 minutes. That's not a tough job at all. Amen. Come to, come to Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well, right? But these false teachers, that's what they would do. They would get up, they would speak, have great crowds follow them, and they would follow. 
And they would speak great words. But when you tested their faith under the litmus test of, against God's word and his love and following God's commands, it came up bankrupt, empty. All the great words in the world cannot replace a distinctive life. And what John is saying here is that God cares about your affections, your heart, your feelings, your emotions, all those things. But he also cares by extension and by connection, your actions. We cannot love God without obeying his commandments. Well, Derek, didn't, didn't Christ fulfill the law? Yes, he did, friend, but that doesn't absolve us from keeping the Ten Commandments. We'll be in there in two weeks. That's why we believe that homosexuality is a sin. That's why we believe that to not lie is a or to not lie, whoo, uh, that to lie is a sin. That's why we believe those things, because the moral law stands and has not passed away. But equally Christian, that's why we do not have the slaughterhouse. I've tried, Don, I've tried to make the property house the slaughterhouse for our sacrifices every week, but he hasn't gone for it. We don't have to do that anymore. That's gone. We don't have to worry about eating shellfish that you're, you, with respect to our president, argued as a reason not to become a Christian because Christians shouldn't eat shellfish, and they do. Friends, that has passed away. The civil law or the moral law stands, but the ceremonial and the governmental laws of the Old Testament are gone. But in Christ, the moral law stands. That's why as Christians, it is not a burdensome thing to follow God's commands because it says we are to do so. As a non-Christian, how does that sound to you? Well, you may say you're okay. Well, I'm okay. God doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I live as long as I'm sincere in doing it. Man, that's really tough to swallow. There's a lot of sincere people out in this world, aren't there? A lot of sincere people. I have sincerely tried to swim across the pool several times, but that has ended up with lifeguards and buoys helping me out. I sincerely tried to cook at home, and praise God, God brought me a wife that can cook smashingly well. I can be sincere in a lot of things. It doesn't mean I'm great at a lot of things. Friends, it is just not true. Your own conscience, if you're not a Christian, bears witness against this truth. You can't just live how you want to live. There has to be guidelines. You say, Darren, that's just old superstitious stuff like Russell said. No, it isn't. Isn't it interesting that across every major world religion, there are morals? Have you ever thought about that before? Some would say that that means that everyone is together. We're unified. Friends, that is an evidence, biblically speaking, of God's moral code in our hearts. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 1. Your basic problem doesn't come through religious opinions. Your problem, non-Christian, with respect, comes through your choices about how you live. There are consequences to your actions. This is why I pray that you pray for our local women's shelters. You pray for the Parkville Women's Clinic, the Liberty Women's Clinic, and I know there are several others I'm not thinking of off the cuff. We have real ladies who stand in the gap, um, some who are connected to our church here, who stand in the gap and deal with crisis pregnancies. People who come up and say, I just want to get rid of this thing right now. And, and they show them the sonogram and say, no, this is not just a thing. This is a person inside of you. Because many people have told them over the years, it, it doesn't matter how you live, just live it up. Do whatever you want. There's no remorse for any of your actions. So talk to those people who've had abortions. Friends, there's grace to be covered for those things by God's grace, right? But no action is without a consequence. God's main problem isn't that isn't with if you've heard about Jesus, it's about how you live, non-Christian. Don't ever have to hear about Jesus to sin against God. Look, you can be out in the, in the rainforest and, and, and still have sinned against God. We are born into sin. So be cautious, non-Christian, that your false assurance is based on how you live. 
as non-Christian, outside of Christ, you can have no way. God does care about your choices. He does care about your life. But your basic problem is, is that you don't know Christ. Friends, that's the first application point, the only application point here. In contrast to this, God in Christ loved and obeyed the Father perfectly. And because of that, God's commands are not designed to rob you or plunder your freedom, but to graciously protect you from harm. May we remember that, Christians. Many of us have come from backgrounds that are so restrictive, Christian speaking-wise. Don't do this, don't do that. And there is a purpose for those, and there's a place for those. But friend, have you seen those rules through the rules? Or have you seen those rules through the freedom that God gives you in Christ by the Spirit to live out for His glory? Do you see that difference this morning? Realize, though, that if you claim to know Christ and you have no regard for His rules, then you know not Jesus Christ. That's why He says His commandments are not burdensome. Look, if you want to lie, let's be very practical here. Look, if you want to lie to someone and you know God's command is not to lie, what should you do in that moment? When someone asks you, how does this look on me? It's hitting home now, isn't it? How does this look on me? And you don't want to lie. You want to be honest. Pray that your love for that person will grow. Pray that it'll grow. Or if your boss tells you, do this, pray that you will not do that by the power of God's grace. Look, friends, living the Christian life is not rocket science. It is trusting God through the power of his spirit to give you grace to live moment by moment. That is what it is. As your heart is shaped by a pattern and plan of God's heart, his commands will seem less burdensome to you. It's kind of like when you, Matt, you know this as a youth pastor, it's kind of like when you set up the rules at the very first, you can like cut the the air in that youth group like, oh my goodness, this guy's a fuddy-duddy. He's terrible. But I can tell you after a year in this youth group of watching our youth, Matt set up rules and it has transformed the youth because it's given them parameters. Parents, you know this. It's anarchy at your house if you don't have rules. Are those rules burdensome to them? Yes. You know, our kids are potty trained. We are potty trained in two right now. And it's one flush when you use the potty, not two. It's when you say get on the potty, you get on the potty. There's been a lot of spoons and a lot of spankings and a lot of hard tears the last, babe, last two months. Amen? But we do that because we love them. God's commands are not meant to be a burden to you. They're meant to be freedom for you to live for Christ's glory. Christians should have a distinct life of that. You know, I don't know what life was like before the internet. I'm sorry, I don't. But here's a great picture. Someone once quoted this. What was life like before an internet? A senior politician said this a few years ago. He said, one of the best things about being old is I did all of my really stupid stuff before the internet came to be. Look, friends, whether you've done stupid stuff before the internet or with the internet, the question is, is, (laughs) is have you done your life for God's glory? You are going to sin. You will sin. And friends, if you have not lived out your love for God through his commands the way you should have before or after that time frame, it doesn't matter. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments because they reflect his character. And that will, friends, very practically inform what it means what you post on social media. Let's be honest about that. Those of you who have Facebooks and Twitters and Instagrams and Snapchats and uh, Vines, is there anything else I'm missing in all that, parents? Those of you who have those things, what you know about God and Christ and following his commands will prevent you from saying and doing and reacting, or it should, in certain ways about how you handle your social media life. It should. Well, that's restrictive. It's my Facebook page. It's my time. It's my email. 
would what you post be glorifying to God or would it be edifying to others? It's a great filter by which to post. Actually, I would encourage you, and I'll send this out if you wanted me to, but in the last few days, there's been a great post. There have been 10 things to think about before you post on social media. Friends, how much control do we lose when we think that no one's going to see what we post or do what we do? Friends, it doesn't matter what is seen or what is not seen. The Lord sees and He knows. And is your heart set to follow Him or is it set to please people and get as many likes, shares, retweets, whatever it is that you can do? God's love has a distinctive life and it really matters what you do in even practical things like that. Hits home, doesn't it? It really does. It really hits home. Those are the first two points. You ready for the main one? If you're ready, say amen. Amen. All right, let's move on. How, can I know God and not be changed? There should be a distinctive love about you, how you love the brothers, how you love God. There should be a distinctive life, not that you're saved by what you do, but the following of God's command shows that you know Him. And finally, a distinctive faith. And this is the main distinctive that John will hit through the passage. Christians have a distinctive faith is the main purpose of why he writes this. Why should you have a distinctive love? Why should you have a distinctive life? Because even love and life are incomplete if they don't have a true faith. You can love well, you can live your life well, but people can accept morality and love without knowing Jesus Christ. You can be the most moral person in the world and not know a thing about Jesus Christ. Denominations have fought over this for a long time. Some have said, well, it's just based on the action that we do. We call that social justice. And friends, there is a social justice in the Bible. We don't have time to unpack that, but there are elements of social justice in the Bible. But some churches have gotten to the place where they say, we don't need theology, we don't need Bible teaching. If we just love and have a great life, we're good. And guess what? Those churches are closing their doors more than ever. We would call those liberal mainline churches within the last 10 years are closing because people realize, look, I can love and do all that stuff, but why am I loving and doing all that stuff? But equally, on the other side, you have churches that are so high theology, so ivory tower, seminarian, academic, that to parse a verb in Greek is like what everyone speaks outside the worship center. I don't know my Greek from my Hebrew sometimes because it's, it's hard to pronounce those words. And if you were reading 1 Peter 1 and 2 today, you know reading those cities that you know what I'm talking about. Look, friends, we don't want to be just a church of love and life, and we don't want to be a church of just theology. We want to meld those together. Do you see that? What you believe informs how you love. What you believe informs how you live. If you miss it, you miss both sides. What's happening to these super conservative churches over here? They're losing members by the fray because people are not seeing practically how to live out life. Great theological truths, great things we should believe and, and we will unpack by God's grace in heaven someday. But we also don't want to be so social justice oriented that it's all about just go love your neighbor and, and do those things that we forget that we have a distinctive faith. Friends, you have the only faith that makes sense in this world. You have the Christian faith. You have Jesus Christ risen from the dead. How exciting is that? You don't have to go labor anywhere else this weekend to find that out. You have this faith. Are you grateful for that? You have this faith this morning. What does he say? He gives four quick, brief things that come through here. First, he says that a faith, and I'm going to put up the, the application. You'll see that up there, and the first one's up there. We'll put the applications point, but the first one he says is this faith needs to be according to faith in God's Son. Look at verse 1. He says, everyone who believes in God's Son must believe, or everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father has been born of Him. 
Friends, we have to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. He is fully God and fully man. That is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. And the divine Jesus, as it says up there, took on human weakness. So in your moments of human weakness, he can provide you with divine strength. What a great God he is. Church can have Christian church in the name, but we have to have both God as man and both God as God. Jesus himself taught and argued for this. Friends, do not believe any of the junk that comes across. Please, Jesus Christ is God. Can I just say that again? Can you say it with me? Jesus Christ is God. How easy that can get thrown out in today's society. We need to be clear on this as a church. This is what separates us to love and live life well. In the sharing of the gospel, we are not just inviting people to, or, or, or calling people to respond to a gospel of a doting grandfather Jesus that sits in heaven and is a bellhop cosmic, across the cosmos to give you whatever you want. We don't have a God that knocks on the door of your heart and says, let me come in. We have a God that's going to break down the door and find you where you are and pull you to faith if he so pleases to do so. We have an almighty, infinite God who can wreck our world if he so chose. But yet in love, he sent forth his son. Friends, we need to remember that we have a distinctive faith. We do not have a God that is a Jesus that is depicted in so many ways today, that is a buddy Jesus, that is your best friend Jesus, that is a lack. Yes, he is a friend and he's a brother. Remember that. He's approachable. But he is holy, holy, holy. And only those who come to him know that truth. Friends, I pray at Tower View that we never lose that distinctive. I pray we're not pig-headed about it, but we stand firmly with what the Bible teaches because that is exactly what he says. Those who know Christ are born of God, and everyone who loves the Father has been born of this God. We have to have faith in God's Son. Secondly, he says, look down at verse 6. We have to be clear about what not only who God is in Christ, but what Christ did. We must believe rightly about who Jesus is, but we also must be correct about what he did. Look at verse 6. Distinctive of the faith. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. John means that God became fully man. He wasn't Casper the ghost. He wasn't some guy masquerading as Jesus. He came by water, by his baptism, John chapter 3. He came by the blood, the death on the cross. And this is why Jesus didn't die for some future, all put together, alternate universe version of yourself. He died for you as you are and therefore loves the real you. Friends, that should set you apart this morning. When God came to earth, he wasn't waiting for everyone to get it all together. By cracky, they didn't have much together back in the Roman world. They had roads. That's great. They had baths. They had aqueducts. They had lots of things like that. But the Roman Empire was at a height of depravity that was crazy of the day. And friends, that's what I want to remind you here today, that we need to be correct about Jesus' death. Jesus' death is not trying to make you anything more than what God in his sovereignty by his spirit wants to make you. Jesus' death for you was very specific. It was to provide salvation only in his name. And that is what the center point of Christianity is. It's his death. We believe in a bloody cross. Judy talked at length about this on the front of your bulletin. Do you put a little red drop in there? Yes, do. Friends, we believe in a bloody cross that Jesus died on. But in doing so, 
Jesus takes you as you are where you are. You don't have to, I, I need to be careful in parsing my words here. You don't have to clean up your act to come to Jesus, but you do need to give Jesus all of your act. Does that make sense? Come just as you are, but give it all to Jesus and hang out back to nothing. He took on, Jesus did, the physical, but more severely, the spiritual punishment for all who would repent and believe. And he says, when you come to him, you can't just name him as Savior. He has to be Lord of your life in every sector of your life. That's a distinctive faith. Because the gods of other religions will say, as long as you please this God, you can do whatever you want to do over here against this God. Our God is one God, and he believes in every sector of our lives. Every area, crevice, every nook and cranny has to be covered by his grace. Non-Christian, what will you do with your sin? You have sinned. I remember talking to a guy in Westport one time, and uh, he said, I've never sinned before. And I said, oh, yeah, well, you just told your first lie. And then he goes, I've never cheated on, I've never cheated on my wife before. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, there are some scantily clad folks, as they're often worn in Westport, walking by. My eyes are here facing him. And where do his eyes go? <laughs> I said, I don't know your mind, sir, but I bet I can tell you the attention of your heart. They just walked by. He said, no, I didn't. And we went through all the Ten Commandments, and it was just, and, and, and he kept checking his watch, and, he, and, and finally we got to the last commandment, and he, we went through all those, and I just remember he said, oh, oh, gotta go, and he left just like that, because God's law was speaking into his heart. I didn't have to tell him he sinned, he knew he'd sinned, but friends, when you become a Christian, there are some things you need to know for sure, and that is that God will take care of all your sin. That's a distinctive, friends. When he came by water and blood, everything that Christ did went back to the gospel. Christian, you need to think about that more often than you know. Why did he die for someone like you? If Christ died for us, we should have an overwhelming sense of hopefulness in this world. He shouldn't have died for us. He shouldn't have died for the best candidate. He shouldn't have died for the Mother Teresa's of the world that gave their life to service. He shouldn't have died for the -the fill-in-the-blank great people that we'd all agree upon. He shouldn't have died for any of us, but he did. And in a world that we have, your hopefulness is found in what Christ has done for you. Let's move on. Third, we can also see we have a true Christian faith that has belief in God's word. Look at verse 7. 7 through, uh, we'll actually go through 7 through 10 here. He says, For these three are that testify the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the water and the blood, and they all agree. Verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. But whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has concerning his son. John says we must believe God's own testimony. It is often perceived that Christians think they know the truth because they are better. Christians are often seen as prideful. I wrote an article a couple weeks ago for Off the Grid News. I I helped them with their worldview section. And one of the uh, questions they wanted me to tackle was, are Christians narrow-minded and bigoted for believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? And if you want some fun afternoon reading, I encourage you to go on their Facebook page, Off the Grid News, and look through those comments. All the answers are pretty much, yes, 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 yes. Are Christians narrow-minded and bigoted? Yes, 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 yes. And when I, I was reading through some of the comments of why people thought that, it came back to the fact that Christians are perceived as being very prideful. I don't know if you've ever been told that before. Christian, you're prideful because you believe that we know the truth and that makes you prideful. Does it? Maybe it can. But friends, we are not trying to be clever, but we are only revealing what God has shown to us. And that's what John's saying. 
We have a distinctive faith that hasn't come from our inventions of men. We didn't have 12 writers of Hollywood making a script for us. This was God's plan, as crazy as it was, that God himself would come down into a manger to be buried in or or a shed or a stable, whatever it was, and to live among the donkeys, the stinky stuff all around him, and would go and live a perfect life. He would die on a cross, be poured out all God's wrath on him, raised from the dead, and then almost like a Hollywood script, but it is Bible, he went back up to heaven. If you tell someone that, they're going to think you're off your rocker. They really will. But friends, this is why it's so easy to remember that this is God's testimony of himself. I'm glad that God did not use anything but humble means to bring about his gospel. Because when he did, he made it a testimony unique among religions, unique among anything else. And to know that you're a Christian, you believe these very things. You believe these things. It's almost like if you go to a concert, uh, what is it, Sandstone Amphitheater now? What is it called out there these days? Uh, Out in Kansas, Sandstone, one of those, that big amphitheater out way out in Kansas, uh, that, that nice place over there. You know, as an expert, you may know the next song coming up. You may know, you know, if you invite a friend in and, and you say, well, this song's going to be coming up next. And you, they say, how do you know that? And the song happens. And, and they look at you and they say, that's prideful. It might be. But what if, I was the, what, what if I was the one that was told what the next songs were? Is that pride? It can be. But God simply told us in a similar vein, and we believe it. Just like someone who knew the song set list beforehand. It doesn't mean you're prideful. It means you're just sharing the truth. True Christian faith is the humble acceptance of God's own testimony. Friends, let me just move on with this application point. You don't have to hide, apologize, or hold off what's on the Bible or in the Bible. It is living and active. It is sufficient. It can bear any weight. You don't have to apologize for the Bible. You don't. How many of you have ever struggled reading the Bible? Be honest. Raise your hands. Hard passages, things you look at, things you hear. Guys, I do too. This is why we're committed at this church to going verse by verse or as best we can, phrase by phrase, through the Scriptures. Because there is hard stuff out there. Friends, you don't need to apologize for it. You don't need to hide for it. Yes, did God at times take out whole peoples, men, women, and children? Yes, but God also gave them great warning and great preparedness and great mercy. Did God at times use weird means to accomplish his ends? Amen. Yes, he did, right? He uses us, right? Think about that for a second. God is still good to us. Friends, we don't have to apologize for it. Don't think, 10 years ago, the big thing was to have these tents on college campuses where people would come up. Whatever Christians have done to you, I'm going to sit here and apologize for. That gets pretty ridiculous after a while. The water fountain was hotter than it was. Well, you need to apologize for that. Really? Guys, we don't need to apologize for this. We have the active living word of God. That's what makes our faith different. We are not Gabriel speaking to Muhammad in some remote place way out yonder. We are not Joseph Smith behind a curtain making weird sounds and de, uh, what's the word here? decrypting the Egyptian hieroglyphs that he carried on his back with two tons worth of golden plates. We are not Marietta Baker of Christian science who had to think about all these things because people were getting sick around her. We are not those things. We have a Bible that was fashioned by the Holy Spirit working through human offers with their personalities, perfectly, flawlessly, inherently inspired to give us the perfect word that we have. That is the testimony of God. And if you believe that, that sets you apart. Don't apologize for it, friends. Don't apologize for quoting a Bible verse every now and then to someone. 
not pridefully, not attackingly, but humbly saying this is what we believe. Friends, there are hard parts of the Bible. I want to reassure you of that today. You do not have to get out a I am sorry card from Hallmark or two for a dollar at Dollar Tree if you're like us at home and do that. You don't have to. It's sufficient. It can bear its own weight. And that is what John is saying. If you have God's testimony, it is greater and that is a distinctive of our faith. It is a distinctive of our faith. Let's end with this. The final thing to notice about true Christian faith is it has great benefits. Amen? What great benefits it is. Look at verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? It's our faith. It, notice, it doesn't say your love. It doesn't say your life, although those are in the passage. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes Jesus is the Son of God? Friends, we have overcome the world because we have eternal life. We have overcome the world because Jesus Christ has done everything that we need perfectly, completely, satisfactorily. But what does he mean by world here? He means the opposition to the world that comes to believers. He means that we have been conquering or we can conquer the world by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why, and I want to beat this drum, this is why political action is important to a degree. But political action isn't going to save a country. This is why in your family, reading Dr. Phil is not going to save your family. This is why in your family, in your friends, in your business, in everything that you do, what is it that overcomes the world? Is it the great strategies that we have? Is it the great personality that we can bring to the table? Is it the great things? No. Who is it that overcomes the world, verse 5, except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That is why at our church we pray, and we pray in your families, in your small groups, that everything is gospel-centered. How do you solve problems in your family? By filtering it through the gospel? How do you solve problems in your business? By filtering it through what Christ has done for you. Friends, as Christians, we too need to overcome the world by our faith in Christ. This does not mean if we, if we are Christians that life will be easy. Please, let's, let's distance ourselves from that thought. But what it does mean, though, is we have eternal life. We have overcome the world. The world cannot hold us down. That's why Paul was like jello on a tree. You kill me, for me to die is gain. If you shackle me up, for me to live is Christ. You just can't stop the guy. Like jello on a tree. But our faith is not Jill Archery. Our our faith is like Pike's Peak. It's like Mount Zion, which stands forever and can never be taken back. Friend, stubborn rebellion is overcome by even more stubborn grace. That is the story of the gospel. Even though you and I have been as stubborn as stubborn could be before God, he has more stubborn grace. Some would call it irresistible because that is the story of the gospel. Have you ever thought about this before? How did you come to know Jesus Christ? How did you come to know Christ? Was it because you were a better thinker than the person next to you? Was it because you were better looking? Perhaps. Was it because you were in better shape? You had a better bank account? Your kids acted better? Your house was in better order? No. It was by God's call in your stubborn grace. 1 Peter 1, 2. We studied this this morning in Sunday school, small groups. By the sanctifying of the Spirit and obedience to the Son. It is by God's grace that you came, Christian. And that is distinctive. Because you realize that every other religion will tell you that if you mess up with the God of their religion, you're out of here. See ya. But friends, true Christian faith is a belief in God's Son. Do you believe that today? Do you have a distinctive life, a distinctive love, and a distinctive faith? If you have those things, hold on to your faith because that is assurance for you. Let's pray as we end.
this morning.